tell me about the day when you knew something wasn't right. So I was getting dressed in the bathroom in front of the mirror, and I was putting my shirt on, and I remember seeing this protrusion in my chest, sort of right between my breasts, just a little bit below. And it looked like a bone or something just sticking out ever so slightly. And I kind of rubbed my hand over it, felt it, poked around. It felt hard. I figured it was a bone, but I really wasn't sure. What bone? <laughs> Not great with anatomy. Yeah. Wishbone? What is this Is that thing? my wishbone? Do we have wishbones? <laughs> Do we have wishbones? We don't. You know, what is this thing poking out of my chest? And as far as I can remember, that was kind of the end of it for the day. I was on my way somewhere, didn't really think about it until I saw it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And then it just kind of kept protruding more and more. And I realized that the whole area was sort of just protruding a little bit, ever so slightly, just enough to make you think something is going on. I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible, Thanks for Asking, a show where I learn things about human anatomy I definitely should have learned before, probably already knew. Humans don't have wishbones. Hate to break it to you. I was kind of hoping we would, and like I could have my kids fight over it when I died, or like they could break it ceremonially. Um, but moving on. The year is 1999, and the place is Cleveland, Ohio. Nicole is 21 years old. She's about to finish school in graphic design and photography, which she loves. She's living with some roommates, no parents, making her own decisions. She is, I mean, she's doing amazing. I had this little white convertible, this adorable best friend named Tom, in this amazing, okay, well, fairly decent party scene in downtown Cleveland. And every weekend we were going out and I had my cute little crop tops and we were partying in the convertible. And I was a dance instructor at the time and I was rollerblading every day. I was super active. This is peak 1999. If you're wearing crop tops and rollerblading daily, you might be living in the year 1999. And since this is 1999, there's something very conspicuous that is not in Nicole's life. I mean, you know, the internet was there, but I'm pretty sure but I was had it? dial up. Yeah. <laughs> it was there, but only, I mean, in some places. It was, it was very, very different. Yes, and the glory of WebMD was not a thing. Self-diagnosis wasn't a thing. That's right. The internet was still a swaddled little infant baby for most of us. In 1999, I was a junior in high school taking a class called Computers. And our teacher was like, you got to learn how to write an email. It's the wave of the future. And we were like, yeah, right. No, no, no way. No way. And maybe you had Alta Vista running on the internet. Maybe you were using a, a free CD-ROM with AOL hours on it. What you weren't doing was researching graphic and cataclysmic descriptions of every single small pain and weirdness your human body could experience because you couldn't. 
So when Nicole is feeling this thing in her chest, this thing that doesn't hurt, but is definitely weird, she doesn't Google or Alta Vista or ask Jeeves about her symptoms. She does what she's always done. She does what everybody did in 1999, 1979, 1949. She goes to the doctor. And one of them was younger, and he was like the cool hip guy that everybody wanted to see. So I was hoping that I got that doctor, but I did not. I got one of the old crabby brothers, and I went in, and I laid on this table, and I said, something's wrong. Really helpful, Nicole. (laughs) And I told them what was going on, how I was feeling, what I saw, and they poked a little bit, poked around in my chest, poked around in my abdomen, told me I was fine. Well, everything seems okay. Asked if I had any other symptoms, which I didn't, so that didn't help. And basically sent me on my way. Okay. Well, that was easy. Ship shape? I did feel relieved, but I also did feel mildly dismissed that he didn't take me seriously. But, you know, at that point in my life, I had no reason to not believe him. Nicole keeps living that life. She's studying, she's partying, and she's noticing every day. I was gaining weight, but not in the way that you imagine someone gaining weight. I wasn't getting a spare tire. Just my chest was expanding, sort of like somebody put a balloon behind my ribcage and was slowly pumping it up a little bit every day. And I did have to start buying new clothes. And I just, you know, you just know when something's wrong. I was very active. I wasn't getting fat in the places that women get fat. So there's no reason that eating too many pretzels is going to make my chest explode. Okay, so that's, that's kind of weird. So she goes back to the doctor again. And maybe this time she'll get that hot young one. I was like, hey, me again, still got this weird thing going on. And at this point, I saw the other crabby old brother. (laughs) I remember more poking and prodding. And at that point, them telling me that I was gaining weight and that I just needed to eat less. Oh. (laughs) Oh, well, that solves it. Again, I had no other symptoms that I could explain to them. So you hear that and it feels not great? Yeah, even more dismissive than the first time. I will will just tell you right now, if at 21 I went to a doctor and they told me um, anything, I would just be like, I believe it. Uh, Thank you and goodbye. Yeah, pretty much. That was pretty much it. And I had no reason to not trust a doctor at this point in my life. They were these smart authority figures who had all this schooling and all this knowledge, and they're supposed to be the experts. So if they tell me I'm fine, why should I not believe them? So she believes them. She's just getting fat. And months go by, and she starts wearing baggier clothes and sweatshirts, and she keeps getting 
bigger. And again, it doesn't hurt, but she feels unhappy and isolated. She stops going out. She stops seeing her friends. And then she gets some good news. Nicole's biology professor at school invites her to go on a big school trip to Australia. And I was so excited. I had never really traveled, hadn't really done much. This was the opportunity of a lifetime for me. But by this point, it had been just a little bit over a year since I first noticed that something was wrong. And things were pretty bad at this point. I was starting to have other symptoms. Primarily, I was having a lot of um, acid reflux. I was having trouble breathing. Okay, with all of these symptoms, and before she embarks on a trip halfway across the world, Nicole's like, I, I should go back to the doctor. But she's still a little embarrassed. I mean, she's been there twice, and she's been kind of dismissed. But one day, Nicole and her mom are walking to get ice cream, and they pass a construction site, and a man makes a gesture at her, but not the one you're thinking of. He just looked at me, and he kind of patted his stomach, and he said, pregnant? You know, and he made that motion, which obviously he has no clue how inappropriate this is, regardless of the size of a woman. But my heart sank. I nodded my head yes, and I said, yeah, twins. (laughs) So that's it. It's time for Nicole to go back to the doctor to try to Goldilocks those three brothers, see if her third visit could be the charm. And it works. And she gets the cool young one, which feels like a weird thing to be fixated on. But when you're, you know, when you're 21. Like, hey, you're adorable. I used to be adorable, but let me take my shirt off and show you this alien that's growing inside my chest. Nicole lays it all out for him. The changes, the upcoming trip where she'll be in the middle of nowhere and on a very, very long flight there and back. She's just hoping not to die from whatever is happening. And he says, you probably have a hernia in your diaphragm. And it would have been my third hernia at this point in time. So I believed it. Now, that could still be serious, so Dr. Cutie says Nicole should get a CT scan once she's back from Australia. And Nicole feels just so happy to have something happening. I was happy to go on my trip. And look, a lot happens on that trip, but the thing you need to know is that there are a lot of remarkable sights to be seen in Australia. We stayed in these cabins, and we had this tour guide who would do yoga naked on the porch every morning. And we would wake up early specifically just to peek through the window and watch this like long haired, tanned, like hippie Aussie guy do like naked handstands on the porch. And what younger listeners need to know is that in 1999, yoga was not super mainstream. (laughs) Like, right, especially for men, although possibly it was in Australia. Yeah, um, men in the American Midwest were not doing naked yoga <laughs> in front of 20-year-olds. That was not a thing yet. I was not in Cleveland anymore. I mean, on her trip, Nicole also hugs exactly one koala, which is 100% more koalas than I've ever hugged. But, I mean, totally worth it. 
It is worth it, but the trip is hard physically. This hernia makes it hard for Nicole to breathe. She feels sick when she eats anything. She has vertigo and insomnia. And instead of wearing cute swimsuits, she's wearing baggy clothes to swim. She does not love the photos from that trip. I'm just this, like, weird, loaded, like, sad sack in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) But I had fun, you know, and I went and I didn't die. I made it home. So that was that was a plus. Nicole didn't die on that trip or afterwards, which is how we were able to do this interview. She made it home and made that appointment for a CT scan to get that hernia taken care of. It was on a Thursday morning, and I went before work, and I worked about 10 minutes away from the hospital. And, you know, I left, and they said, we'll call you probably Monday with the results. So I drove back to work, and before I had even gotten back to work, they had called me. That's probably not a great sign, getting an immediate reply four days early. Nicole calls them back because there weren't cell phones yet, but Nicole gets someone on the phone. And he said, we need you to come back in as soon as possible. We have your test results. You have a tumor on your ovary. And then he was just silent. And my first thought was, well, shit. I'm totally going to die. And then tears filled my eyes. And then I realized that I was smiling. And then I started laughing, like almost hysterically. And I didn't know if I should go cry in the corner or if I should tap dance across the desk. Because, I mean, to me, it was just, it was 100% proof that I wasn't crazy. And I had spent so long thinking I was crazy, everybody telling me that I was fine, and just having to accept that nothing was wrong, and this was just who I was going to be forever. And all of a sudden, that was gone. I was just happy. I was happy to have an answer and happy to have validation. Just a few days later, feeling happy and validated, Nicole meets with the surgeon. And it was this short, older gentleman with this crazy, wild, almost Einstein-like white hair, this big beard. And he walked in and he was holding a chart. And he looked at me, kind of like, is this the right person? Because I hit it well. And then he looks at the chart and he looks back at me and he says... It's really fucking big. (laughs) Dr. Sailormouth explains that the cyst is not on her ovary. It's actually on her fallopian tube. And it can't really get much bigger because if it does, it's going to explode and kill her right away, which is just what you want to hear when you've just come back from a trip to the other side of the world carrying a cyst that could burst and kill you at any time. He explained that it was 32 centimeters wide, which was pretty much the size of my body. If you're someone who only traffics in imperial measurements, that is more than 12 and a half inches. And he said, 
we have to you know slice you open drain it take it out and we won't really know the extent of the damage or any side effects until we get in there and so I really had no idea what it was going to mean for my future for the rest of my organs that were being crushed I just knew that there was no choice but to have it removed but I you know I took this picture in the morning before the surgery of me side view holding my stomach as if I'm pregnant looking like I'm pregnant with this beaming smile on my face and everyone who sees it they're like why do you look so happy why do you think I look so happy I was about to have this thing taken out of me that I've been living with for a year and I didn't care what else was going to happen We'll be right back. And we're back. Nicole has a surgery to take care of what doctors at first told her was nothing but weight gain and then told her was a hernia and then finally found out was a cyst growing on her fallopian tube. The very first thing I remember was like coming out of the fog, touching my stomach. Like, where did it go? Oh, my gosh. Like over and over, just touching it and touching it. And it was just bandages and they were like stop 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 hitting yourself what are you what are you doing are you okay do you have pain i'm like what it's gone it's done that cyst is out of her the doctors come in as her head clears and nicole starts getting information about what happened they explained you know what they found what had happened i couldn't really see anything at the time because i was so bandaged up but the doctor said you know we started the incision about half of the size that it ended up being, but there was a septum in the cyst that we couldn't reach, and so we had to double the size of the incision to be able to get to it and drain it and then take it out. And they said it had 10 liters of fluid inside of it, which if you stop and really think about that, like five two-liter pop bottles. Literally what I was thinking. Yeah, because, I mean, what else can, you know? That's two and a half gallons of milk. (laughs) Yes. And I was 41 pounds lighter. I was 167 pounds when I went in, and I was 126 when I came out. And they said, um, it was a mess in there. You know, we we don't know how, how you went on for so long. They said... Your, you know, the fallopian tube that it was attached to was pretty much demolished. We had to basically cut half of it away. And so, you know, it's just kind of hanging out in there, flapping in the breeze, basically. And they said, you know, as for all your other organs, they said, we nicked your other fallopian tube. So you're going to have some scarring. We don't know the extent of the damage from the pressure, everything else that was going on. But, you know, 
you're probably okay, basically. Like, very... Just... Flippant? Yes, that's, yes, that's a great word. I couldn't think of it. Let's just take a second and reflect on that. The cyst had grown to 40 pounds. Nicole took that 40-pound cyst on a trip to Australia. She took it on a long airplane ride in a pressurized cabin twice, far away from any health, with every medical professional she saw telling her that it wasn't that bad. It's nothing. Now, it's easy to play armchair medical quarterback and say, oh, doctors are such doofuses. It's easy to say, well, that's why you always get a second opinion. But the thing is, this is an incredible story, like a 40-pound cyst that's pretty incredible. But it's not really an unusual story. Because so many women experience these kinds of things. It's not always this extreme or, or difficult. A lot of women get cysts. A lot of them go away over time. They're never noticed. A lot of women develop larger cysts on their ovaries, and they need treatment. There's endometriosis. There's tumors. There's fibroids. So many things. So many things. Even outside of that, many women know what it's like to feel unheard by their doctors. When you're young, you might not know how to advocate for yourself. You might not get someone who fully understands what's happening or who really values women's pain and women's discomfort. Nicole is 40 now, and she can look at her past self with sympathy. And she can even extend that tenderness towards her doctors. It's my body. I know it better than anybody else. But I didn't believe that at the time. And if somebody had told me that, I still don't know if I would have believed them. You know, my aunt said something to me once. She's a nurse and she says, you know, they call it practicing medicine for a reason. I mean, essentially, they're practicing. You know, they're seeing new things all the time. They don't always know. But at age 21, Nicole's doctors seem as surprised as her at every turn, even when she's in her recovery room and they're telling her about what happened. During the surgery, they ran out of containers to drain the cyst into because there was so much fluid in it that they they just weren't expecting it to be that big. They were just amazed. And all these people just kept coming in to see me. How do you feel hearing all this? Like, wow, we had no idea. And you're like... uh (laughs) I mean, and, and you didn't either, but a part of you did. Like, a part of you knew something wasn't right. Yeah, I was so happy that it was gone. But also, psychologically, it was weird. It, it felt like I had become attached, you know, to this thing. I spent so long living this life, and I worked so hard to accept what was going on with my body when I didn't know what was going on with my body, that mentally it was really difficult for me to accept that that was gone and it was over and that things were going to be different and I was going to go back to the way I was. And the whole week is pretty much just a blur of laying in bed, having a catheter at first, and then eventually trying to hobble my way to the bathroom and just holding my incision, feeling like everything was pushing and everything was just going to come tumbling out at any moment. Oh, my God. 
Nicole stays in the hospital for six days. When she's discharged, she heads home to her parents' house, where she watches movies and eats pudding and ice cream and thinks about her future. Figuring out how to how to come back from that was all I cared about. I, you know, I didn't have a boyfriend at the time. Yeah, and I was not thinking about kids at all. We'll be right back. And we're back. A year has passed. Nicole's incision has healed, leaving a pretty big scar. And she's getting back to her life as a 22-year-old. And a new part of her life is keeping Aunt Debbie busy. My aunt was basically having a nervous breakdown because my two cousins had gone off to college and she didn't know what to do with herself. Now, what's the perfectly quirky but creative keeping your aunt distracted and busy sort of hobby activity? Let's take a class. Let's take a stained glass class. Let's do something fun. Nailed it. Operation Distract Debbie has a plan. Nicole and her mom sign up, suit up, and head out to stain some gosh dang glass. Okay, so you get there and who's teaching the class? This really hot guy. Um, what does he look like? Well, he had on a t-shirt that was really tight. I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, he has so many muscles. <laughs> Who has this many muscles? And he stood there and he had this really deep voice. And at the time, he was the same age as me, but I was for sure he was like 35 years old. He just had that way about him. And he said, I'm your teacher. I used to jump out of helicopters and fix guns and the army and... But I also like to make baby clothes. I really like to sew. Really love stained glass. And I was like, sold. Okay. I mean, yeah, we're all sold at this point because this man was created in a lab by the army like Captain America. That is my theory. But are her mom and Debbie picking up on this vibe? So Debbie doesn't even end up coming to the class. She was the whole reason that we signed up and she totally bailed. So it was just me and mom. Classic Debbie. And, yeah, right. It is classic Debbie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm the only person under the age of 50 in the class. So that was kind of a running joke. But no, I don't think she picked up on the vibe. And honestly, I don't think I really gave off much of a vibe because I felt like he was old, <laughs> too old for me. And I thought he was cute, but I was not. I wasn't looking you know, like a year had passed, but it was, it was a rough, it was a rough year. A lot had happened and I felt like I was just barely getting myself back on track. And 
everything that I was doing was related to my job. I was super career focused because it was just kind of what I had to cling to after I came back from everything. It was what had been there. It was what I loved. And I thought, all right, well, I'm going to find a new job, you know, doing the same thing somewhere else. And I'm going to move there. And that's what I'm going to do. And so, you know, finding a guy in Cleveland and staying there, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't on my radar. This is classic rom-com material. That line, it just wasn't on my radar. That line is the first act of every movie worth seeing. (laughs) And act two of all these movies is absolutely how Nicole's story goes, too. She and Hot Teacher stay late at class and talk and flirt and flirt and talk. And then Halloween comes around and there's some glass-making emergency and she calls him on the phone about it. And he asked if I wanted to come pass out candy at his house. So I did. I guess that was technically our first date. Um, He had just bought this house. He was fixing it up. He had like no furniture in it. Typical guy. Um, And it went really well. He was a complete gentleman. We had a great time. And I think I pretty much saw him almost every day after that. See? Rom-com to the max. Careful listeners who have been taking meticulous notes and filling out spreadsheets as they listen with all relevant timeline information, those listeners will of course realize that it is six months after that glass class commenced, which means it's late 2001, which means we're now in a post-9-11 world and Nicole's new boyfriend is in the National Guard. He was really good at what he did. He loved his job. And at that time, a military job meant that you had to get deployed, which he was about to be. Just after they started dating, he was going to Afghanistan. And this is the midpoint of the rom-com where the relationship is tested. There was no question that I was going to be there when he got back. I was going to move into his house. I was going to take care of things and I was going to be waiting and I'll see you in a year. Have fun. Don't get shot. This is the kind of relationship where they had already started talking about marriage just two months after their first date. And in that sort of relationship, you share things. Your past. Maybe talking about some cool international trips where you hugged a koala and saw a naked man do yoga. Maybe some major medical surgeries and where that giant scar came from. But you also talk about your future. Nicole didn't know exactly what she wanted for her future. But I knew that he wanted kids, that he loved kids, and that he wanted a lot of them. And I just remember thinking, all right, we'll figure it out. They are both 23. There are oceans of time ahead of them. And he's deploying to a war zone. So yes, you talk about your past and you talk about your future, but you mostly hang out in the present. You soak up every weekend you can steal together while he's waiting to ship out from a base. And so we had nothing to do but just sit in hotel rooms. And I remember specifically just laying around and talking and just feeling like that was when I completely fell in love with him. Nicole's love goes to Afghanistan, and we have our rom-com montage of her getting settled into his house, probably 
getting him some actual furniture, rearranging that furniture at various times of the day, getting frustrated, hands on hips, sighing, moving the furniture back to exactly where it was before. LOL. Maybe painting some rooms a cheery color, a little bit of paint playfully and attractively smudged on her cheek. She's probably wearing a bandana in her hair for this. At some point, she's holding a roller. She turns. She, she like, hits a different wall with it. It's all fun. There's music playing. And the music swells. Because he's back. It's his homecoming. He did not get shot. And they launch into their life together. We have all these house projects and we'll get married when we finish this, when we finish that, and you know how life just gets away from you. It does just get away from you. It's a whole different montage. They get married and they talk about what nearly all couples talk about. If we are gonna have kids, we can't wait too long, like we need to get on with things. And they do manage to get into a place where maybe it's maybe time to try to maybe have kids. And then, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And things at my husband's work were just kind of going downhill fast. And we knew that he was probably going to lose his job or that we were going to have to buy the business or that he was going to have to go back into the military. And we just foresaw all these changes coming. And so we decided that it wasn't a good time. And this is the moment in the rom-com version of Nicole's life where they should enter the climax of the story. They deal with all the things, they have a final heart-to-heart, possibly in an apple orchard and or in the rain or on a staircase at a public building, a library, a courthouse. Those are the only public buildings I can think of. And then we cut to the slow-mo of them lining up for a photograph with their dozen children, everyone smiling. But... This is not a rom-com. This is a life, a real life, Nicole's life. And it's way, way more complicated than that. Those life details, the glass class, the Halloween hangout, the deployment, all that stuff is real. That all happened. But mixed in there was a lot of other stuff. I was, I was scared, you know, because they basically said, eh, I mean, it's possible. It's possible you can get pregnant. It's possible that you'll just have ectopic pregnancies over and over. It's possible that nothing's going to happen because your ovaries are angry, your body's angry. Every time I thought about having kids, even before I met my husband, I was just scared. I was so scared of having another surgery, of going through something crazy and horrible, of something weird growing inside me, of a baby growing inside me. I mean, that felt weird. I felt like I had a baby growing inside me already, and it was an awful experience. Clearly, the two are nothing the same, but that was what my young brain was thinking about. And... I found myself just deciding that I didn't want kids and then still thinking, okay, I'll change my mind. And then even when I knew my husband wanted kids thinking, okay, like I'll change my mind. I'll be ready. Like I'll be, I'll want to do it with him. 
And when it was time to think about it, I mean, I was terrified. It was just all that fear coming back, the uncertainty, thinking about dealing with the heartache of something going wrong, and still convincing myself that it wasn't what I wanted. And when I think about it now, you know, I feel almost like that decision was made for me in this post-surgery, young Nicole, like recovery phase. I was young, I was scared, and I think I just convinced myself that it wasn't gonna happen because I didn't want it to. And only looking back lately in life, do I wonder, you know, did I make that decision? Was that decision made for me? And it's hard to differentiate those things. This isn't just her decision. Nicole has a husband. He's a part of this, too. He had things going on, including a career that often took him away for long periods of time. After Nicole's father died and things started to settle. For the first time, he was okay with not having kids. He didn't want them anymore. And I also almost feel like that decision was made for him just given the circumstances of life. It's just not what he wanted. And, and I think that's okay. He didn't want to miss his child's life. But it's something that I think about every day. And when we watch movies with kids, and when we see people with kids, and everybody we know has kids, I feel awkward. Like I get hot and I get nervous. And I wonder, you know, how he actually feels about it. If, if he's going to regret it later, if I'm going to regret it later, if he's angry at me, if he's angry at the way our life turned out, he says he's okay with it. You know, sometimes he makes jokes about not having the patience for kids. And I mean, he'd be an amazing dad, but I honestly don't know 100% how he feels. And I'm too chicken to ask him, even though he's my husband, because I don't necessarily want to hear the answer. Because, you know, not having kids for me at this point in my life is nothing but guilt every day. You know, it's, it's guilt for my husband. It's when my father was dying, one of the last things he asked me was if I was going to have kids. And at the time, legitimately, I had no idea. But more importantly, I didn't know how to answer that question. You know, I'm watching my father die and I'm like, okay, well, should I say yes? Will he be more upset if I say yes and he knows he's going to miss it? Or will he be more upset if I say no, you know, that I'm never going to have kids? And I just said, I don't know. I mean, it was such a cop out, but it was true. And it's always complicated and it's always hard, no matter whether you're, you know, talking to your mother and you're an only child, you know, and she's realizing she's never going to have grandchildren, you know, or it's a stranger a lot of time, it's a stranger. If you're a parent and you meet someone new, a new adult, there are a few common questions you can pull from your conversation starter pack. And here's one of them. Do you have kids? 
It's a pretty innocuous question, right? I mean, when you're asking it, yes, but when you're receiving it, not really. I don't think this is malicious. I know I've asked it, but it does set off so many things for Nicole and for a lot of people because it isn't a yes or no answer. It is and it isn't. It's a yes. I do have kids and they're perfect, wonderful ones in prison. We still adore him. Or it's a no, but... I had a giant life-threatening cyst on my ovary, and then I was taking care of my dad, and my husband was in the army, and I don't know, maybe I never wanted kids. It's just a question that opens up a lot for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, you could ask just like, oh, yeah, tell me about yourself. If I want if I want to talk to you about my kids, I'll say that I have kids. Like, yes, tell me about yourself is the ideal question. Yeah. It's perfect. Tell me about yourself. Like, I, it's like, not, you know, what do you do? Yeah. Do you have kids? You know? What defines you? No, tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. Whatever you want to tell me about yourself, whatever you want to reveal. When we thought about talking to Nicole, we assumed this was going to be about pain, physical pain, and how women, this woman, are dismissed and suffer through things they shouldn't have to. But the conversation turned, it always does, into this space, this kind of pain, this kind of decision or not decision, this kind of conversation and line of questioning, and how it tends to create these little clubs about how life is the sum of all the things that have happened to you and by you and the choices you've made and the choices you didn't, and how hard it is to trace where you are now back to a single point. When Nicole was 21, She wasn't worried about her fertility. She was worried about her career and her passions and her crop tops and that convertible and her fun young life. But 40-year-old Nicole has 19 extra years of perspective. Did a part of you think about, like, well, why didn't they just do this scan before? Yeah, I mean, and that's something I think about pretty much every day of my life when I see myself in the mirror and I see this scar it's so easy to think back and say, well, why and why not and what if and who and what and where. And and I don't understand why at the time they didn't just do a scan or an ultrasound, which is even simpler. And I I wonder if it was laziness. I wonder if it was them truly thinking that I was okay. And that I was just gaining weight or that I was just some crazy, self-conscious 21-year-old girl who was worried about her body. But I feel like if I was a doctor, I would just, I'd rather be safe than sorry. Maybe not having children was a choice that Nicole and her husband made, or maybe that choice was made for them by Nicole's doctors when she was 21, or by some unknowable combination of all their life experiences. We don't know. Nicole doesn't know. And whether it's because it was my choice or because it wasn't my choice, you know, it's one of those two things. It shouldn't matter, but it does, unfortunately. It's just a question. Do you have kids? It's kind of one of the lazy ones. Like, what do you do? Do you have kids? Kids and career, career and kids. Both of those topics are secret codes for whether the other person is in the same club you are in. And if they are, great, come on in. And if not, I mean, 
that gets lonely for them. It's hard to make friends. My life is dramatically different, especially with other military families. There are a lot of kids in military families and just sort of a different lifestyle. And I just, I have trouble relating to anybody. It's just this dynamic of life that I can't relate to that makes me feel very different than people who do have kids. I think most people, they assume that it's out of selfishness. And it's horrible. And I can, I can point out to people, you know, all of the very non-selfish things that I've been able to do because I haven't had kids. Like, it doesn't matter. There's still something, there's something weird about you if you don't have kids or you didn't want to have kids. kind of like how people criticize tattoos. Like, ah, geez, I'm being my dad now. Ah, geez, you're going to have that for the rest of your life. Dummy, you're going to want that when you're old and wrinkly? And yeah, I really don't care about when I'm old and wrinkly, frankly. And Nicole thinks all the time about the permanence of kids and of not kids. I think probably most people who decide not to have kids think about this. There's a window for kids, biological or not biological. And when you see that window closing closing, closing. You have the same set of questions. Ah, oh, geez, this can be for the rest of my life. Will I want kids when I'm old and wrinkly? Will I be satisfied with my life if I don't? I think it's just something that comes with age. You know, this questioning, this regret, this wondering, this looking back and looking forward and worrying and wondering. So I sort of feel like I'm at this weird crossroads where I'm questioning it all more than usual. And I wonder what's going to happen as I get older. Am I going to be lonely? Am I going to be alone? You know, is my husband going to die? I'm not going to have anybody there. But having kids doesn't mean they're going to be there for you when you're on your deathbed. It doesn't mean they're going to be there for you at 18 when they leave the house. They might never look back. You can't predict your future. There are no guarantees. There is no safe or easy path. The best you can try to do is look back at where you came from, search for how you feel now, and do the best you can with what you have and with what you've been through. This experience is something that I think about every day. I can't help it. Every time I see myself in the mirror, I see this giant scar on my stomach, you know, and and I still, you know, 20 years later, I still, I worry about it every time something pokes out funny or my muscle flexes in a weird way or I move the wrong way or I catch something in the light. I think that it's back, it's happening again. And I can't help but think about, you know, how my life would have been different if it didn't happen. I can't, I can't say it would have been better or worse, but It's something you think about, for sure.
I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. I have a book recommendation to go along with this episode. It's called Invisible, How Young Women with Serious Health Issues Navigate Work, Relationships, and the Pressure to Seem Just Fine. It is by Michelle Lent Hirsch. Our senior producer is Hans Butow. Our assistant producer is Marcel Malikibu. Hannah Meacock-Ross, I always call her Hannah McInerney in my head, not married to Hannah. I wish. Hannah Meacock-Ross is our project manager. Jordan Turgeon, friend of the pod, doing work for us too. Uh, You can find me and all of my projects at noraborealis.com or on Instagram and Twitter at noraborealis. I do hate Twitter though. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media. Acronym is APM. If you're looking to save some sills, that's short for syllables, which I say to also save time. <laughs> really into a briefs here. Mm. Are we done with the narration? We're done. Narration. Narration. narration is over, Hans. <laughs> <laughs>